Hey, what's going on? I'm Travis with Proselytizer or Apostatize, and I'm really stoked for tonight's conversation. We're going to be discussing the problem of evil, and uh, we have a really good panel here, uh, and I'm going to let everyone go around and introduce themselves, uh, starting off with my good friend Ben Watkins of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. Uh, he's one person that I've really learned a lot, uh, you know, with regards to the problem of evil, and that I really look up to from the atheist side, and so... Ben, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us about your channel, what it is you do, and things of that nature. And you are muted, buddy. Yeah, so first off, thank you for inviting me on. And as Travis said, um, I'm one of the hosts of Real Atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. And where we explore questions in the philosophy of religion from non-theist perspectives and see what the philosophy of religion can look like after we've rejected something like perfect being theism. But we also try to engage respectfully with philosophy of religion, literature that's contemporary um, and peers. Uh, we try to engage with them charitably and really just kind of have fun discussions like this one. Yeah, sounds good. And we're really uh, thankful to have you on. And so also uh, from the atheist side, we have uh, Rich, uh, who, who's uh, he's been on here quite a few times uh, doing various discussions and debates. So uh, Rich, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us how we can find you, what you're working on and things of that sort. Hi. Well, uh, you probably can't find me. I'm not working on anything, any particular, anything particular at the time. Basically, uh, I would just describe myself as um, an atheist who has been in the trenches discussing uh, all these sort of problems uh, with religious people and other people uh, for, you know, I guess, a couple of decades. But uh, I have to admit, I was most fervently into it. Uh, those on the ground more years ago and i would describe myself as more running on fumes at this point but i just hope i can occasionally uh, contribute something um i might be uh, punting stuff to watch uh, um uh, ben do his stuff here so how much i contribute or sit back we'll we'll see all right well we're thankful to have you on here for this discussion and so uh next we'll go with the guests uh want to welcome my good friend uh than of exploring reality Dan, go ahead and tell us about yourself, uh, your channel, what you're working on, and what you do, things of that sort. Yeah, so my name's Than Christopoulos. Uh, I run a nonprofit called Exploring Reality, where uh, my main focus is just to help Christians actually learn how to charitably have conversations about their faith um, and not have bad arguments for the faith, like look at the trees and stuff like that. So I really focus on the popular level um, teaching the basics of argumentation, history, stuff like that. But then also um, the, I guess, the time, one of my big missions is exposing how not scary people like Ben Watkins or Rich Harkness are, um, and that we can charitably inter have conversations together um, and have a way forward um, and kind of eliminate this tribalism. So that's the bird's eye view of what I do. Absolutely. And we're thankful to have you on. And so next, I guess we'll go with uh, Tyler Fowler of CSG. Tyler, welcome, bro. And go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Tell us about CSG, things of that sort. Well, thank you, Travis. I really appreciate it, brother. I am Tyler Fowler. I am the co-host of The Complete Center's Guide. We're a podcast and a radio show primarily focusing on three things, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world, discerning biblical truth, and making disciples of all nations. 
And so one of the things that we're really focusing on now, we're taking December off actually to prep for 10 episodes introing Christianity. But as a side note, we really like to focus and emphasize that Christi Christianity, it's not monolithic. There are different perspectives of the Christian faith. And so we really enjoy debates, discussions, dialogues, things of that kind of nature from all perspectives, from every, you know, all views, uh, because we're all learning, right? We all don't have it figured out and we're trying to, we're all in the same boat. So I'm seeking truth. And that's what our podcast is really dedicated to, you know, to. And so I just appreciate, you know, Pora and you guys invite me on. I'm really excited for this discussion and super excited to have been here as well. And as far as everybody else. So thank you guys for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you on. And so hey, I guess. Hey, Travis, let me yeah. interrupt for just a second. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so it, I'm going to what I want you to do is uh, also keep a line on the Quay and add people because I know you want to get the conversation going. So whenever right. you think it's appropriate to add people and if we get too many, I will jump off so another person can come on as well. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'll do. Uh, but, um, yeah, just keep an eye on the Quay. All right. Gotcha. It's like a and musical so chair. Right. And so I guess just real briefly before we get started, uh, Dale, if you want to take a minute and introduce yourself, although you're no stranger to the channel, but. Yeah, sure. Yes. Uh, so I'm the host of Real Seeker Ministries. Um, so kind of like everyone here, I, I have my podcast um, on various topics of philosophy, religion, and that sort of thing. I've interacted a couple times with Val, but I, I guess, do you go by Rich now? Have you lost the Val uh, well, on this uh, on this uh, podcast, it's Rich. Okay, which oh, is my real name. Yeah. All right. Cool. I'll try to remember that. But uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah, that that's me in a nutshell. I do various topics. Um, I'm known for the Shroud of Turin. Um, you know, I, I'll do shows with like Gary Habermas about the minimal facts stuff, stuff like that. So that's me in a nutshell. Sounds yeah, good. Dale. See, I got Rich to break down his walls. <laughs> so we need we're gonna need you to uh get, give us some camera footage here soon enough <laughs> we'll see we'll see oh, oh, and I, I should mention i'm also the co-host of theo geeks to give uh with david russell here so yeah okay and also we have our very own caleb jackson who has actually written a book on this very topic of theodicies that i just read uh and i, I highly recommend everyone check out so caleb you want to say anything real quick before we get started Yes, David Paulman wrote a, uh, I'll say glowing review sarcastically. No, Travis Worth <laughs> likes that book. He, he really likes the, the stuff I say about Swinburne in that book as well. But no, it's it's called Searching yeah. for Solution to Suffering, uh, hashtag not sponsored. So yeah, I'm just happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to be here and, and discuss this topic. And I'm sure that uh, I, I try to, to get both sides. And so I think it'll be an interesting discussion to see arguments on the pro and the con, because I think it's not a clear cut issue either way. So. Right, I agree. And uh, David, did you want to say anything before we get started, brother? Nah, man. Everybody knows me. I'm usually the intro guy. So, but yeah, man, I'm uh, excited to hear what everybody's got to say, man. Let's let's get to it. All right, sounds good. Uh, so I'm going to start off with uh, Ben. Do uh, you want to kind of get us started? Like, kind of give us maybe an outline of, of the the problem of evil, and we'll kind of like take your lead and like you know what you lay out. We'll kind of go around and, and respond to and kind of dialogue back and forth a little bit. Sure. So the problem of evil is in one way, at least one way, kind of misleading because it makes it sound like there's just this one problem of evil. But in reality, there's kind of a family of different problems that are kind of related by different um, 
intuitions. And so we can start with the fact that our world contains undeserved suffering and circumstances of injustice. Um, but then we can ask, um, do these intrinsically undesirable or evil states of affairs count against something like perfect being theism? Um, to be more precise with the question, do the kinds, amounts, and distributions of evil count against believing in a being who has the knowledge, power, and motivation to prevent them? So according to God's omnipotence, God can perform any act whose description is coherent. Um, God is only constrained by logical limits. And according to God's moral perfection, God always performs morally permissible acts and never performs any morally wrong acts. And so his moral character cannot be deficient in any way. Um, this is important because the properties we ascribe to God have implications and constrain how the world could be if we're, if it were created by such a being. So according to perfect being theism, um, I'll just call it theism for short. Now um, God's omnipotence and moral perfection entail there are no unjustified evils, such that the probability of, of observing an unjustified evil, given the existence of God, is exactly zero. And so there's kind of a core um, reasoning to an argument from evil. The idea is that theism implies there are no unjustified evils, um, but the world contains unjustified evils. Um, therefore, it seems to follow that theism is false. Um, and so to be clear on some terms here. Um, when I say that something is evil, I mean that it is intrinsically bad or undesirable. And an unjustified evil is an evil state of affairs God would not be justified in allowing. And then there's this other concept of an inscrutable evil, um, which are evils that we cannot discern a God justifying reason for allowing. And so arguments from evil get distinctions made to them quite often. And so really the four most common distinctions are general and particular. So a general argument from evil will argue from general facts, like the kinds, amounts, and distributions of evil in the worlds. Whereas particular arguments from evil will, will focus in on one particular aspect or one particular evil. Um, so the idea of animal pain. Um, Rose, famous example of a fawn that burns in a forest fire. That's a particular example of an evil. Then there's a logical and evidential um, distinction. So in the literature, you'll find logical arguments of evil, which say that um, there's some fact that is logically incompatible with the existence of a perfect being. And then there's evidential forms that say that, no, these facts, um, while they might be compatible with the existence of a perfect being, um, they're evident. They're just merely evidence against God. They make God's existence less likely. Um, and then there's objective and subjective formulations of the argument of evil. So in ethics, there's a famous dis uh, disagreement about whether ethics is objective or subjective. And so arguments from evil can take both forms as well. Um, and then the final distinction that you'll see is axiological and deontological formulations. So an axiological are, um, has to do with value, goodness, and badness. So to say, look, oh, there's there's just so much bad stuff in the world, and that's what counts against the, be, uh, the existence of God. But a deontological argument is one that appeals to concepts like rightness and wrongness. It says, no, God would have a categorical obligation not to allow certain states of, affair to, states of affairs to obtain, and because they do obtain, that would be wrong. 
And so that's how it counts against the existence of God. So I know I've said a lot kind of really fast, so I'll kind of stop right there. But I think that kind of broadly lays the landscape, I think, of the, the problem of evil. Okay, yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, and so I don't know if we want to go in and kind of like start going around, or do we want to outline a, a particular problem and sort of address one at a time? So... I think probably it's just taking you, things. Yeah. I was just gonna say, yeah, probably taking things one at a time might be the best way to go about it. What do you guys think? So one of the most popular um, problems that because it's it's so interesting to talk about is the problem of animal pain, um, because a lot of the traditional theodicies don't really seem to apply to that problem, and so drawing the distinctions from before, we can say that the problem of animal pain um, is a particular problem. Um, that's an evidential problem, that's an objective problem, and however we want to cash it out, whether we want to cash it out in terms of rightness and wrongness or goodness and badness, depending on however we want to take the conversation. But I think that's generally the best way to kind of dive in. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, real quick, oh, Charles, can I clarify yeah. something, uh, Ben? You said particular evidential. What was the third category? A uh, third category is objective and subjective. And so I think that it's most useful um, to talk about the discussions of the problem of evil in objectivist terms. Gotcha. Um, I, I find that easy, easier. Um, people disagree with me, but. <laughs> okay. So um, I guess I'll go ahead and start and we'll just kind of go well, around. How about we have Rich uh, put, oh, put sure. anything out real quick before we get the, the theist response in okay. there. Well, uh, I presume that uh, at some point, some sort of free will defense will be showing up. And so I have you know, a fairly brief um, comment or, or argument uh, concerning that, but I don't know whether really I should add it on top of Ben's now or wait till somebody raises a free will <laughs> response. It's up to you. Yeah, you can wait. Yeah, you can wait. Yeah, I think um, we should wait just, and yeah. see yeah. if free will comes up because that yeah. can be a rabbit hole in itself. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So nobody bring up the free will defense. <laughs> <laughs> oh come Rich, on, please! Rich played please. his hand too soon. <laughs> and do we? Can we bring it up freely, or are we determined to bring it up? <laughs> God preordained. God preordained you to bring it up. So. We're on track to having okay. an entirely I'm different conversation. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> right on. Uh, so Travis, uh, we, yeah. we did get somebody in the quay. Uh, you put them on. Uh, would you like right. to introduce them? Yes, uh, I want to welcome, I guess, Bonson Van Til. Uh, great to have you on. And I, mean, I don't I think that's either Bonson or Van Til. <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking that. <laughs> okay, well, um, did you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, Bonson Van Til? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for having me on, and I want to uh, raise uh, some objections to what's been said. But I'll wait my turn on that. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and get us started, and uh, I guess we'll go in order of like David, Tyler, Caleb, and, and so forth. And so um, I, I think this is one of the better objections, actually. You know, I, I like Draper's argument that, you know, and I think we can kind of look at it abductively. Like uh, we have this certain observation that we see in the world uh, of animal pain and suffering, right? And I think it would be a more expected matter of course, given something like cosmic indifference, than it would on perfect being theism. So it's kind of a way to saying, you know, hey, you know, I, I think if we 
apply inference to the best explanation, cosmic indifference may come out ahead on this. Uh, so that's kind of the way I would go with it. But I, I think it's also interesting that people like Swinburne bring up things that like, you know, the, these uh, laws of, of physics and processes that we have are not just necessary for humans, but also for animals. For example, it's like it's only in a world where some fawns die in forest fires that others like learn to nurture and, and protect their young. It's only in this type of environment where, uh, you know, you have animal predation that, you know, uh, animals learn to, you know, to procreate and to protect their young. And, and so they kind of gain epistemic knowledge. So that's kind of the route Swinburne would take. And I'm pretty sympathetic to that. So that's just my two cents. So I guess if we want to go ahead and go to David Russell. Well, I was going to pass the buck to Tyler because he was talking okay. about compatibilism and stuff like that, but we're not going there yet. So uh, I was going to pass it off to him, let him go. I'm, I'm just going to try to uh, take up the rear, Travis. So. Okay, sure. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, really, I don't have a lot. I'm kind of learning at the same time. I haven't heard. I'm not as really you know, into this topic as you guys are. Um, but thank you, Ben, for that. I really appreciate it. I'm going to actually pass the buck on this one too. Um, I do want to make. I do want to ask you a distinction or something to kind of clarify, though. Um, as a Christian, we definitely see, you know, like humans being created in the image of God, and so we're categorically different than animals. Would you say, if given that's true, there's a categorical difference between animal suffering and human suffering? <coughs> So, yes, um, I accept a distinction myself. Um, I think that Homo sapiens are moral agents, and I think that most non-human biological organisms are merely moral patients, with a few exceptions. I think some higher primates might have a you know proto-moral agency. Um, and so, but that doesn't mean that I think that they don't have um, moral worth. So do I think that, um, an animal's pain and suffering is morally equivalent to that of a human's suffering? No, I don't think, I think there's that important distinction. And so I concede that this problem for theism of God allowing animal pain is not wrong in, in as deep a sense as something like God letting innocent children suffer. Um, that there is a moral difference in the way that children suffering with bone cancer is just worse than a fawn dying in a burn, in a forest fire. Okay. Yeah. Sounds Thank good. you so, for that. I appreciate it. And so what we're going to, we're going to have the uh, guests. We want to make sure we honor, you know, them and their time. So we're going to have them go first. So uh, we'll go ahead and skip to Than If uh, you want to give your thoughts on animal pain. Yeah. Um, so, I'm kind of like Tyler here where I'm still learning a lot of this stuff myself. Um, but there, I guess I would want to ask what would be your response to like maybe Proust's um, argument or I guess the Odyssey from aesthetics almost. Um, you would couple this with like a greater goods defense even where perhaps God could allow some types of animal suffering that might seem gratuitous um, but there seems to be like this almost aesthetic value to allowing these things to happen because it allows humans to not only exercise greater goods, but also it almost puts together this heart wrenching story, I guess you could call it, where um, humans 
can collaborate together um, and come together, even despite um, ideological differences, tribal differences, and all these other things, to come to the help and the aid of the ecosystem, um, stuff like that. Yeah, so I would be skeptical of aesthetic properties being morally relevant in this sort of situation because um, I think that the problem of animal pain has two really important aspects. And so the first is the biological role of pain. So biological evolution by the very processes that it uses are intrinsically cruel and inefficient. And so that it ensures that there's going to be a prolonged amount of suffering throughout the whole process. Um, and then the other aspect of it is that there's this incongruity of flourishing and languishing. So populations in gene pools flourish very rarely and languish very often. And so if we're saying that there is some aesthetic property, something beautiful that um, justifies the picture we find ourselves in, I find it very hard to find the beauty in millions of years of sentient animal suffering, as well as the fact that 99% of all species that have ever existed have just gone to extinct. Um, now, I can find the, the, the beauty in the natural processes of it and the wonder of nature and the, um, you know, the, the clockwork awe of it I'm, I'm with you but does but does that morally outweigh all of the suffering um that we observe in the animal kingdom i would be skeptical of that it yeah. seems that it that it's not that we find beauty in it rather than beauty being a feature that is morally relevant within it gotcha so so you would still say that this would be like gratuitous suffering, even given some of aesthetic purposes that we might assign to sure. this? Sure. And just okay. like I, in, in the other uh, aspect of this, so that's just my skepticism. Another yeah. aspect of it is um, with the problem of evil, um, there's a parallel problem in the aesthetic domain, and it's the problem of ugliness. So we might say, you know, we might think that beauty counts in favor of theism but if we think that beauty counts in favor of theism um by symmetry ugliness counts against theism um and so you have not only would you have this kind of skeptical like it's not i'm, I'm not really sure that um the aesthetic properties are morally justifying the evils we observe in the world but there's also this fact of well then how do i also account for all of this ugliness in the world yeah, that's so interesting. In fact, uh, Thane and I were actually discussing this earlier about uh, aesthetics. I think it's very interesting and then how aesthetics might could go with the underlining, like fine tuning of conditions. And so that I think that's something uh, to take into consideration as well. But um, if we want to go ahead and jump to Bonson Vantil, what are your thoughts on animal pain? Really quick, I just wanted to, Ben, thanks for that response, by the way. I, that gave me a lot to think about, so I appreciate that. Absolutely. So the way I begin with this is that uh, I say that God is primarily interested in his own glory and uh, he decrees all things for his own glory. And so that's going to include animal pain. And uh, there can't in principle be any such thing as uh, gratuitous animal suffering because it all glorifies God. He decrees it all for his own glory. So there's, there's just not an objection there. 
Hmm. Okay. Um, so I think there is an objection here. Um, so I think that when you say that all of this is for his own glory, that's going to take a very self-interested um, perspective of morality. So we, I th- find it an essential claim of theism that God is morally perfect. Now, if what we mean by that is that God maximally fulfills his self-interests, I, that's not morality. That's to me. That's might makes right, and we've now left the domain of what a morally perfect being be. I think that a morally being, instead of being supremely self-interested, would be maximally impartially benevolent. Would care about the good of others impartially, and so that would include the well-being of non-human animals. And so, when you make the claim that all animal suffering is for the glory of God. I have no idea what that means morally that uh, to me, I just like, I don't, I don't know how to make any sense of that at all. Right. Well, well, I would say, why is the God of the universe bound to your expectations of what he should and should not do? So it wouldn't be my expectations. It would be the expectations of morality, which would be impartial benevolence. That just seems like that's your definition of morality that you're trying to impose on God. But I don't see any well, reason. He, he doesn't so this is why I think, it, I think this is why it's most important to formulate arguments from evil in objectivist terms, because it just kind of does away with this objection. Because if we're talking about the problem of evil in objectivist terms, to say, well, well, that just sounds like your opinion. Well, no, because these would be the objective principles of morality that don't depend on any particular fact about me. And that if there's something true or we're getting something right about morality, that's not going to depend on any subjective characteristic about me. And so to say, well, to, to level as an objection, well, that's just your opinion, doesn't engage with the argument if it's in objectivist terms, for sure. And we can we can see that. We 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 can we can be skeptical of me all we want, but that doesn't actually solve the objective problem of evil. Yes, I would agree with that. It's just that you you had said that uh, these were what you would expect given a good God, and so I just uh, it, it sounded like you were uh, um, using your expectations as a defeater there. So that that's why I addressed it the way that I did. It's fair, um, and I sh- and I could so that's probably my fault then. Um, so I should have been more clear in my. Um, characterization of the problem of evil because what would most likely help us here is a likelihood judgment. And so when I say my expectations, I mean the probability that some hypothesis confers on an observation. So let me take about 30 or 45 seconds to kind of unpack what I mean by that with with a simple example. Um, I don't want to take up too much of people's time, but I think this this might be very helpful. Um, and I'm sorry I didn't do it in the first place. Um, so let's imagine two people, Billy and Sally, um, are in a restaurant and you are the cook of this diner and you get an order for oatmeal and you wonder who ordered the oatmeal? Was it Billy or Sally? Well, you don't ha- actually have enough information. The two hypotheses um, of who ordered the observation that someone ordered oatmeal doesn't actually discriminate between those two hypotheses. We have to make additional assumptions about what Billy and Sally might want. Well, the same is the case with 
um, unjustified evils in the world. We, get, we don't know what to expect. The probability of theism doesn't confer a probability on an observation unless we make an additional assumption about what God would want. And the only thing that we have to go by that is the moral intuition and essential claim of theism is that God is morally perfect. So we can say that God would want that which would make things go impartially best. That assumption is what confers a probability on some observation. So when I say that an observation is not what we expected, it's not some subjective thing, you know, whim of mine. I'm saying that this, uh, the, the hypothesis of theism conferring a probability on an observation is not what we would expect as far as the observant given in probabilistic terms. I hope that helps. I'm sorry I didn't lay that out at the beginning. No, no, no. Yeah, so, oh, so, I, I appreciate you explaining that. And I do have rebuttals, but I'd like to give uh, the, hand it over to other people so I'm not hogging all of the mic time. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And um, to kind of like take Ben's side a little bit, you know, I think we can also not just like, you know, probabilistically, but plausible, you know, like a abductive plausibility, like say maybe, hey, you know, this observation seems more plausible under indifference than a perfect being uh, and so forth. So there is that route. But um, I guess we'll go ahead and go to, uh, looks like Trick uh, has just joined us. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and if you have any thoughts on the problem of animal pain you'd like to share? or uh, can... Yeah, so I'm Trick. Uh, I'm known mainly in the politics and religion server. Uh, this is one of my favorite arguments. I am an atheist, but I was curious if Ben thinks that the argument is an internal or external critique specifically to Christianity? Um, I think it can be both, but I think primar primarily it's an internal um, critique against theism, which is why I think that subjectivist formulations still pose a problem to uh, various forms of theism. And so that adopting a subjectivist framework doesn't actually get us out of the problem of evil. Um, and so let me give an example of why I think that. So someone might um, think that um, God is morally perfect, and they might also be a hedonistic utilitarian. Well, a subjectivist about ethics um, doesn't have to be an objectivist about ethics to point out, hey, the world is not a hedonistic paradise. That's an internal critique of someone's beliefs of a perfect being and utilitarianism and how that those are in tension with each other. Uh, sure. If you agree that it's an internal critique, then presumably you would have to operate under the definition of morality that a Christian would use, which is going to typically be that which is in a line or in accordance with God's will. So if analytically morality is dependent on God and let's say free will and us being able to do evil is what is morally righteous in an, in, in like, a zoomed out perspective, then how would the problem of evil work in such a worldview? Yeah. So again, this is why I would prefer to cast it in objectivist terms rather than subjectivist terms. Cause I think that if we're making morality dependent on something like God's will, we're putting, we're casting things in subjectivist terms where we're, morality then depends on a subject, God and his will. 
Uh, descriptively, um, it would still be objective. So you have two definitions. Descriptively, but so what matters yeah, morally so, is not descriptive. What matters but, morally is normative. Well, according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I would assume most people here would take as a reliable source, there's actually two definitions that philosophers use when being moral realists, which is descriptively and normatively. Normatives, normative ethics are going to have to do with oughts, but you can have Christians who have descriptive ethics, which are still objectively true, but it has no oughts entailed. So like whatever we do is irrelevant to whether or not it's moral or immoral. Yeah. So I think that it's the objectivist terms that um, raise the real serious issue here that we can see. If we put it in subjectivist terms, um, we still have the same problems. However, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. What do I mean by that? So um, we might say that God is good in an objectivist sense, now, what if we wanted to avoid that claim and say that, no, God is in a descriptive sense, objectively good in the sense that God is loving. Okay, well, then when we ask, what would we expect of a loving God? Well, a loving person would be opposed to suffering. So we can then cast the problem of evil in entirely morally neutral terms now so that we can maintain that objectivist descriptive feature of it and say, God is perfectly loving. A perfectly loving being would be maximally opposed to suffering. There is suffering in the world. Therefore, suffering counts against the existence of God. And so at that point, we've, made, we've kept um, the objectivist terms out of the equation and we can cash this out in those subjectivist terms while the descriptive features of it are entirely objective. Um, but there's still a problem there. We still, um, we haven't actually solved the problem of evil because what we think about God's, what God's subjective motivational set would be after, you know, ideal deliberation or however God makes his decisions doesn't line up with the observations in the world. So that's the real key aspect of the problem of evil is that the expectations of what we have of God, what the theory has of God, and what we observe in the world are probab probabilistically or logically, depending on how we cash this out, in tension with each other. And so it doesn't matter if we use objectivist or subjectivist terms, we can still find the same tension. Yeah, so I would agree um... – it's just it's going to depend because there's multiple ways someone would address. You could have a, a normal Christian address and they would end up talking about free will, which I think is useless. But if you were to talk to a Calvinist, I think that a Calvinist could address the point pretty easily in saying that they, they're OK with off of the definition, uh, considering their morals in some sense subjective, but descriptively subjective to where there's still an ob objective aspect. So like if God were to kill somebody in any sense at any time it's always going to be a good thing because god did it no matter how he does it or what he he does it with and that's the way that they would address can that. i can i ask a question right there do do you see a, a functional moral difference between that and might makes right if god if god can just do anything and it's morally justified to me that is that is paradigmatic might makes right no, I, 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 would, I would completely agree. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm saying that Calvinists, when addressing the problem of evil, can say... Oh, I, can get, say I got it. You're supposing that this is the... Gotcha, 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 gotcha. I'm sorry. 
All right, man. Uh, really good stuff. And so uh, we're going to jump to uh, Dale Glover in the next. Uh, I really want to hear what Caleb has to say also, since he's written a book on this. So looking forward to that. So uh, Dale, do you want to go ahead and give us your thoughts on the problem of animal pain? Uh, sh sure. So based on uh, just a couple questions, then one kind of specific to animal pain. So uh, Ben kind of mentioned that you do recognize the difference between humans and, and animal pain and that sort of thing. Um, I've heard some philosophers try to talk about the higher orders of awareness, like only humans have this um, higher order, order of awareness, like I am in pain versus animals don't have that. And that makes a difference. So I just wanted to ask you, do you, do you see that as sort of a fundamental difference in any way? Or? Um, so I do see it as a fundamental difference, certainly uh, um, if we're talking biologically. Um, so the move, so far as I understand it, is that the pain we experience is morally relevant, whereas the pain that animals um, experience is not morally relevant, or at least significantly less morally relevant, so that this isn't such a problem um, for theism. Um, and so I, where I would be skeptical of that is that I think that um, the pain experienced by mere moral patients is, is still morally relevant. So I don't think so. I think that this is one of the intuitions that utilitar utilitarians are right in that when um, something experiences agony, um, whether it be human or non-human, that's still bad. Now, whether or not um, the awareness, you know, we can we can talk about degrees of badness here, you know, is being aware that you're in pain worse than just the sensation of pain. Well, yeah, the awareness we can we can concede that's bad, but it's it's still the pain um, itself is intrinsically bad, and so it has moral significance. And when we look at this moral significance throughout history, we see that it's a lot. And so I think this move only at best, I think if we if you can if you can see this move in its entirety, at best it just reduces the problem rather than solving it. And is it all right if I add something onto the end of that? Sure. Absolutely. Go ahead. I just wanted to say that's not even an option for the Christian theists because the, the Bible is abundantly clear that animals are capable of uh, suffering. So I just don't think that when people like William Lane Craig try to uh, get around this problem. It, it just doesn't work at all because uh, the Bible is just so clear. If, if this theodicy works, then the Bible would be false. So it's it's just not an option for the Christian. Well, so, the, so William Lane Craig. So to come to William Lane Craig's defense here, I'll 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 be a devil advocate for a second. Is he's not denying that that animals don't suffer because because they very obviously do suffer. Um, I think what the denial is is that um, they don't have the fe the the su this suffering doesn't have features that are morally relevant. So it's suffering, but it's not suffering that's bad in the way that like the suffering of the Holocaust was bad or the suffering of you or I is bad because we're aware of the suffering. That this awareness of the suffering is a morally relevant feature that non-human animal pain lacks and that this moral difference takes the bite out of the problem of animal pain. That's my under, that's my understanding of the objection in its strongest form, I think. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Ben, so much. Uh, by the way, really, really good, uh, good job. So, so far. 
one one more question if that's okay for, sure. for ben just a clarification one so yeah the the other question i just wanted to get your take on is um okay so the the basis i wrote down your argument it's about unjustified evils type thing correct so, and you said that there's two ways to kind of approach that you can ground it in an axiological basis or in a deontological basis so i i just kind of wanted to ask you where do you stand on that and give us some details about that like what yeah so that's that's an awesome question um i'm super excited about that question that's a great question um so i have somewhat of a unique um view in ethic and so i use both so it's often assumed in normative normative ethics that there's this deep tension between axiological theories of morality and deontological theories of uh morality the most um infamous being um the tensions between consequentialism and deontology or what's often known as you know kantianism the categorical imperative um the idea that you know something like the principle of utility is going to come into conflict with something like Kant's categorical imperative. I actually deny this deep tension. I actually think that um, deontological theories of ethics and axiological theories of ethics largely agree and that we need deontological and axiological concepts to make sense of all the moral phenomena in the world. And so I don't think that it's one problem or the other. I just think they're different problems. And that how you cash out, you know, which, whichever choice you use, depend, you know, if I'm making a particular argument um, from evil, it might be more plausible to cast it in um, axiological terms, or it might be more plausible to cast it in deontological terms. It depends on the dialectical context. So I use them both. I don't, it's not an either or for me. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So, so uh, good stuff. And, um, just before uh, Caleb goes, um, I think what we might do is, is kind of like, because uh, we don't want to all like team up and try and debate uh, Ben. Uh, same. So um, I was thinking maybe we just kind of give like our, our I feel like I'm in the middle of the Brady Bunch right now. And like everyone's. <laughs> that like, you are, my friend. Like, yeah, 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 you are. Yeah, like, like <laughs> I, I, I feel like I want to. I feel like I want to take on devil's advocate. It's like, leave my friend alone. Who's the maid? I can't remember the maid's name in the Brady Bunch, but that's who's in the center. I almost yeah. took on a devil's advocate position there, but I decided Ben was doing a better job than I could have. I'll be Alice. <laughs> All right, so, uh, you look like Marcy, dude. Come on now. There you go. <laughs> it's Marshall, the long really is. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so um, I did uh, really want to hear from Caleb because I know he's done a lot of work in, in this area. And so uh, let, let's kind of go with uh, Caleb next and kind of give us your thoughts on, on the problem with animal pain. Yeah, so I think that animal pain is probably, if not one of the best, probably the most persuasive argument against theism. And I think that the reasons said are, are previously are also correct. There's been a lot of work done on human theodicy. There hasn't been much work done on animal theodicy. And a lot of the typical ones given for humans don't seem to apply to animals. Um, and so I think uh, a lot of the stuff that I see uh, isn't necessarily as persuasive. So yeah, I don't necessarily like some of the arguments given earlier about um, we need laws of nature and we need to have a world in which uh, potential for goodness happens where soul making can happen. I think that's a good argument for people. Um, and I think if all animals were vegetarian, that would be a good argument. But the issue I think with, with that, that is predation is itself a different evil because 
if we're going to associate this kind of soul making and moral aptitude to animals, that brings up a whole number of questions of if you're a predator who has to eat meat to survive, is it moral of you to kill another one of your fellow animals to survive, to feed your to your cubs? And if it is moral of you, does that mean that it is immoral of the uh, the prey in question to defend themselves, not die? Should they sacrifice themselves and be humble to, to help the starving animal? So I feel like that just brings up a lot of moral issues and it almost makes it seem like you have to commit a sin in order to survive. And I don't think that is within the character of freedom. I don't think that would be a good of itself. So I, that, that, I think that's a bigger issue for me than just animals getting diseases and, you know, getting caught in forest fires and et cetera. Um, when people were talking earlier about, uh, well, they mentioned William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is actually quoting, uh, I believe it's Michael Murray in his book, Nature, Red, Tooth and Claw. And Murray kind of has that idea of. Yeah, that's suffering. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animal suffering isn't like real um, or at least not not as real as we may perceive it. And I kind of have mixed feelings on that, because on the one hand, I think the cognitive science of like temporal lobe and frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex on higher mammals, including even some rodents, shows that, yeah, they clearly can experience it. Now, the, the theist can get out of this by simply saying that this is within the soul. And so, yes, this might be illusory and from all scientific perspectives, it looks like it. But spiritually from the soul where we can't detect it they're not really suffering now that's very ad hoc because it can't be falsified um it also raises the question as to why we should even have this illusion in the first place why make it lo only look like they are um but i mean it is technically a, at least a potential way out um, but the one that i talk about in, in the chapter that i have in my book and this isn't something that I, i've settled my mind on um but i think that going back to the aesthetic thing that fan brought up there is, at least from the Christian perspective, I think some aesthetic purpose to it, because uh, when we look at evolution and the parallels and, and just the creation story in general, um, you know, God did not create the heavens and the earth immediately. It, it was over a long process, and earth is a fairly, is located in a pretty insignificant part of the universe, and yet it brings forth unique life. And, you know, and life itself took a long time to develop, and life developed long over periods of violence and evolution, and through this process was brought man. And I think when we look at the Old Testament, it's very similar. You know, the Son of Man was also brought about through a process of violence and struggle and 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 death. Um, but but this was made out of it. And so I think a lot of philosophers have talked about this idea of cruciform nature, that nature is reflecting the idea of the cross and it's precursing its way to Christ. And even you see this in the in the Bible with Christ being the Passover lamb. It's using those details of him dying in our place because they would kill animals um, prior to that. Um, so that to me, I think from a Christian's perspective is very interesting. Now, the issue is that is does that aesthetic aspect outweigh the potential harm does for you, uh, for the animals? And so for me, I guess you could say if, if you take Murray's view and say that animal suffering doesn't exist and it's just illusory, which I admit is ad hoc and has certain issues with it, and then say it's good for this illusion to happen because it reflects the cross. I think that at least gets you a, a defense, perhaps not a theodicy, but I think it at least shows a possibility. So uh, if Ben wants to comment on any of that, I know it wasn't a question, but. <laughs> I think Ben stepped away a little bit. He's probably nope, feeling I'm right a little here. bit. <laughs> I'm right here. Oh. I'm, um, I'm messing with my camera settings. It was. Uh, You're looking good, man. It's all good. There yeah. you go. I'm still here. There we go. No, oh, there we go. <laughs> So, uh, Ben, did you uh, want to uh, come before we move on? Did you want to uh, have any like comments or anything you want to say in regards to Caleb's perspective? I don't think so. I think I think uh, okay. because you know he kind of broadly covered 
a lot of the things that I would want to say, um, especially about the move, you know, the move to, you know, this being part of an animal's soul or that maybe a soul, you know, there's some sort of soul building feature seems ad hoc. There's no way to independently verify these assumptions. And it seems like these assumptions kind of being, you know, put in post hoc to save the hypothesis from refutation. So there would be the ad hocness worry there. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. If I can, if I can say one thing to, even though we both agree it, it's relatively ad hoc, I guess what the theist could say is that although suffering of animals is intuitive, and this is how you know we detect other minds is by analogy. At the same time, it's also intuitive that animals aren't at the same level of, as humans, and so you could you could say that when you're asking of what makes that difference, what's a little bit off about animal suffering compared to human suffering, it could be this potential element of the soul that. Uh, we, you know, we just can't detect. Now that doesn't prove it, but I guess, I guess to say that it's not ad hoc to say that animal suffering doesn't seem, or animal cognitiveness does not seem as um, acute as human ones. Now, again, the neuroscience and stuff gets kind of complicated with that, but I guess that could be a little bit of an inference to make. Whereas if, if animals were, you know, clones of humans where they were extreme, almost virtually identical to humans, that would be harder to do. But because animals, there seems to be a clear distinction, it's a little bit easier for the thieves to make that inference, even if it is a post hoc inference. So, okay. Um, so, yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, Travis, uh, we got another guest here, Jono. Hey, welcome, man. Why don't you just uh, say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, what's up, Jono? Sorry, I look a bit scruffy. I've just got back from work. I've still got the, the high vis on. You just haven't um, shaved from the shave November, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm a philosophy student, very interested in ethics, religion, that kind of stuff. I've gotten to speak to Than and Ben before. I'm not too familiar with the rest of you, but thanks for letting people on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We're uh, great to have you. And so... Um, I don't know if there's anyone. Do we want to go on? Because uh, we've spent about almost an hour on animal pain. Uh, is, do yeah. we want to move on to? I've yeah, I was just gonna, yeah tr uh, Tyler was going to just say okay. one thing, and I, then I was going to just conclude uh, this section. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Tyler. No, I just wanted to ask Ben just to clarify something, because I think you said earlier, Ben, that animals are not moral creatures, right? So if any pain happens to them, what intrinsically makes that moral evil? if they're not moral creatures to begin with. Does that make sense? Or is that that different levels that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, so I would want to say that they're not moral agents, but I would still want to say that they're moral patients. So what okay. do I mean by that distinction? So a moral patient is someone that has the capacity to suffer. They also are someone that um, is capable of being the benefactor of an obligation, but they themselves do not have obligations because they don't have the rational capacities to understand the reason implying nature of something like an obligation. So toddlers, dogs, um, rats, other animals, we would consider these morally moral patients, but um, in the sense that they don't have obligations, but we would still have obligations to them not to torture them or not to cause them needless suffering. Whereas a moral agent um, has all the same properties that a moral patient does in the sense of the capacity to feel pain. However, they can recognize a moral obligation and so that they can, they do have these reasoned and implying faculties. Sure. And so, but that means we can wrong moral agents in ways that we can't wrong moral patients, mm -hmm. like lying. Mm -hmm. 
So I could lie to my cat, but I haven't wronged my cat by lying to my cat in the way that like if I lied to you or someone else here would be wrong because they have the capacity, you know, the, with those higher order capacities come more morally relevant features. Sure. No, I appreciate that, man, because I, and I like what you said just now about needless suffering. Right. So just to kind of push back on that a little bit if there is a purpose because that would go into what you said earlier about unjustifiable suffering right like something that is not justified or something that can't be justified if indeed the suffering is justifiable like for example we see in scripture where peter talks about suffering is actually a good thing for christians why because it helps us grow we learn different things through suffering right just an example but i know we're talking about animals here so i'm curious how that would impact this from your perspective, if the suffering that the animal actually endures is justifiable, would that change things up a little bit? For sure. So I think that the, the, the whole question turns on whether or not do we have more reason to believe they're justified or unjustified. Yeah. And so we would, I think that the, the, the primary purpose of theodicy is for, to understand the justification for evils, the purpose, the, the, um, feature of these events and states of affairs and acts um, that make them morally permissible for a perfect being like God to allow. Mm -hmm. And so I think that anyone um, who's um, engaging in this argument seriously should admit that, that there are, you know, th certain things might seem like they're wrong or bad in certain ways, but if you have the full context um, you can see the greater good or the purpose to something. Yeah. So to give the, uh, the classic example is um, a dentist who's causing you pain in your mouth. But you might think, wow, this pain's really bad and I really wish they wouldn't do that. Well, they're giving you the high that's instrumental to the higher order good sure. of um, having healthier teeth. The sure. dentist's intent is to give you healthy teeth. It's just an instrumental um, the, the pain that she caused you causes you is morally justified um, by the higher order good of having healthy teeth. So sorry, go, go ahead. No. So in the same sense, then in like, so for example, we all have been watching, well, I'm sure I have anyway, been watching the Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, case and whether or not what the verdict was going to be with that guy. Right. And so no matter where you stand on that, you know, it's, it, it's relevant ultimately, but the point I'm trying to make is that, in those cases where say he was guilty or we've seen cases where people have been guilty, the judge caused them pain. I'm sure emotional pain, like maybe even physical pain that will happen in jail, but nobody has a problem with that because it was justified because they deserve what they got. That, that's what I'm hearing from you. Um, yeah. So there, that might be the case. So you used a bit of a controversial, um, example in the sense that they deserved the pain. So uh, a view that I'm sympathetic to is that pain, no one can ever deserve to be in pain. Now we might be able to justify causing people pain in other ways, especially by the state in ways to deter people from um, certain types of acts, but the pain itself is never good that someone can never, you know, have the experience of, um, being burnt or whipped and that it's that it's justified um, to cause them to feel that way. Um, but it could. So to, to, you know, use your example in a charitable way, there could be a moral feature of some state of affairs like that, that justifies 
it, 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 we might say, look, something is prima facie wrong. It's wrong at first glance. It mm -hmm. appears wrong. But if we look at it closely, it's not actually wrong. Why is it not actually wrong? Well, because of these other morally relevant features that justified um, gotcha. this other wrong making or bad making property. That we right. So it was uh, other things being equal judgment that's different from the all things considered judgment. The all things considered right. judgment is morally justified, whereas the other things being equal judgment might just seem it's bad. Okay. Gotcha. I appreciate that. And, and just to clarify one thing, and, and I promise I'll stop hogging the mic. I, I, oh, I you're fine. But what, for, so from your perspective, then pain, you said pain is evil. What in bad. Yes. Okay. Bad. Evil, is, evil is an ambiguous term. So we can use evil in deontological terms or axiological terms. Okay. Um, I, if I'm talking about the nature of pain, I want to say it's bad. What do I mean by that? I mean that pain has this feature that we all have reason to want to avoid such that um, we all have reason to want to avoid future agony. So if some event in the future was going to cause us agony, we are all justified to try to avoid that event. Okay. That's all interesting. Right. Okay. Appreciate it. Right. Well, I was going to follow it up with uh, what Ben just explained, but uh... – <laughs> I got a quick question. Uh, I was going to say something on it, but uh, I'm going to jump off, guys, so you can, uh, so we can get some more people in the quay. Um, Caleb, just like I said, uh, uh, help Travis with the moderation. Um, I'm going to jump off, but I will be watching, and I'll jump on when I can. All right, David, take it easy. It was good seeing you. All right, it was good yeah. seeing you, man. All right, bye, David. David's still right. watching us. He's showing us how divine hiddenness works. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Not> peace. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Caleb. Yeah, so, so um yeah, this is really good so far. And um if we have time, I, I did kind of want to get into like Brian Davies theodicy, which I'm sympathetic to that God is not a moral agent under under certain obligations. Um and then maybe look at privation theory. But before we do that, um due to the amount of people here, I think what we might do is uh Ben, if you and Rich want to maybe outline the next problem of evil, and we'll just have more of an open discussion because it's kind of hard to, you know, do everyone. Yeah, sure, that. sure. So I think so. Problem of animal pain, I think, is um, uh, a worrisome feature of the problem of evil. If we're theists, um, the other feature that I find the most worrisome is the problem of horrendous evils. So I mentioned earlier that there was a general problem and a particular problem. Horrendous evils is a particular problem. So we might all agree that, you know, hey, there's these this general evil. There's evils throughout the world. But horrendous evils are something very – they're a subset of evil. And they're the types of evils where people lose themselves entirely in, in such a way that they believe that their lives are on the whole not worth living. And so I'm thinking about people that are like Holocaust survivors, um, people who suffer just so horrendously that um, they see what's it shades into what's called divine silence. This this idea of feeling alone and scared to where people lose themselves entirely. Now, I think that this poses a particular logical problem. Um, of evil. So the previous one with ev with animal pain was an evidential one where I think this poses a logical problem because we want to say that a perfectly loving being such as God um, would not allow someone to suffer horrendously unless it was necessary for their deepest good. 
And then the, the next premise is that horrendous suffering is not a necessary condition of experiencing our deepest good. Plenty of people experience their deepest goods without ever having suffered horrendously. And so that this just, it, the, the mere fact, if you point to any particular instance of horrendous suffering, that is supposed to be logically incompatible with a perfectly loving being. And so again, we'll cast this in objectivist terms. Um, and I think this is most um, powerfully stated in deontological terms, in rightness and wrongness terms to say, look, it would be wrong for God to let someone suffer horrendously unless it was necessary for their deepest good. Sure. Yeah, I think that that's a good, uh, that, and that's uh, quite powerful uh, in my view. Um, I do have some thoughts on it, but I want to uh, open it up to everyone else. And so I guess we'll just kind of do this more of an open discussion. Um, I, we kind of want to give uh, our guests like, you know, first choice, but whoever wants to jump in, I think we, it might be easier to just kind of go that way. Um, I'll be the first to admit this is the one, this is like, I, I always ask Christians like, hey, what's the argument that keeps you up at night? Um, and this is the one. So this is where I'm going to step back and I'm going to hope other people have some decent answers because like I said, I it's the one that keeps me up at night. I, I can, uh, if I can piggyback for a second on uh, Ben's argument, yes, um, maybe just, uh, just add just uh, slightly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, it's it's great to have pointed out that, as as Ben said, uh, some people seem to uh, basically flourish and find God, et cetera, um, without having undergone this losing themselves level of suffering, while other people have this terrible suffering. Um, and then it seems then to get out of that. It seems, um, it seems that you have to uh, argue that. If you've got the two people, one person who didn't have to suffer, and then the person who suffered horrendously, that for some reason, you know, John's suffering wasn't necessary, but Susan's was. Um, and I'm just curious what kind of argument somebody can make that, uh, you know, God would create a person who doesn't require tremendous suffering in order to flourish in every way possible, and would also create, a, a, you know, a person, Susan, who does for some reason need to suffer um, tremendously for some reason. Um, that just seems like a very strange idea to me, unless you can make this, the uh, horrible suffering of one person necessary and not for the other in some coherent manner. Well, I think we've got a very clear answer for this in Romans chapter 9. I mean, Paul tells us that it's God's prerogative to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Some people, God has, uh, by his good pleasure, made them uh, such that uh, their, their finding and their flourishing is the way in which he's glorified and others uh, glorify him in their, in their damnation and in their suffering. This, this is just not a problem from, uh, from a biblical perspective. We, we've got very clear biblical evidence that uh, people just, uh, it's, not, it's not about us, it's about God. God is perfectly loving, but his love is directed towards himself. It's not, it's not all about us then I don't know what you mean by that type of love. So this really brings in, and Ben Ben was getting there before, that um, when you talk like that, uh, there's no reason for me to first off accept um, the morality and notion of good as you're describing it. It is so different from our normal understanding of morality insofar as we apply the concept to 
each other. So when you go into these conversations, um, we need sort of some sort of groundwork as to what it would be for a being to be loving or moral uh, or good, that kind of thing like that. And so I can't just immediately accept yours. The, 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 the problem here is, is that, um, I mean, you can, we can, you can make an argument. You, you don't need to have an objective criteria to have a criteria itself to see if something meets that criteria. So if I have a nightclub, um, and I can arbitrarily make the standard for getting into the nightclub that all men must be six feet tall or older or, or, or taller. Um, that's totally arbitrary, but that is a criteria. And then you can look at what fits that criteria. Uh, and and there will be objective answers uh, as to whether somebody is six foot tall or taller or not. Um, similarly, I think you can start off a conversation about morality even uh, not trying to make a claim for an objective basis, but even but simply putting forth a criteria uh, for what it would be like for a, 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 how a good person would behave. And um, I mean, you can say things like, uh, you know, a good person is benevolent, uh, loving, caring, just takes actions while considering the well-being of others, doesn't may cause may unnecessary interject. suffering. May um, I interject a thought? Sure. <clears throat> My name's Eric for those of you that may not know me. And uh, Jono, I, I agree with what you said. I, I find it odd that we're discussing uh, the, the possibility that some people may consider God not being good because some people suffer. Um, it seems to me that um, God's people have always suffered uh, and always will. And that God is good with that because he doesn't raise a bunch of weak, spoilt brats. Um, uh, let me give you an example. Jeremiah didn't have it easy. Ezekiel didn't have it easy. Ezekiel had to sit down and make cakes baked out of uh, cow dung. Who would want to do that? He was made fun of. He was not esteemed. He was ridiculed and mocked. Jeremiah was taken and cast into the sewer instead of the dungeon. He was hated so badly. And uh, people just have made up lies about God's people who have suffered. Job uh, had it pretty rough. Yeah. yeah. Every, everybody, everybody that has ever been close to God has had it rough. And it seems to me that we're supposed to be in this journey and learning that this is not a good world that we have better things to look forward to, that yeah, it is right to not esteem this world, and that we can expect good to be downcast by this world. We can expect that. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, so, you, you're, you're right to be turning to the Bible like that, but I think you, you're still wrong in that you're uh, still making it about us. It's, it's still focusing on us. And should we look no, at I, don't it's, it's, I don't think it's about us at all, except to... Make sure can I, that we can ask you something there. Why isn't it about us? Spoiled and entitled. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, here's I, so, sorry, Travis. Go ahead. I was yeah. Just, so I, I just kind of wanted to get on, on track a little bit. So I mean, I, I get what's being said. Like you know, you have the biblical stories, like uh, Ben was saying, like of, of Job, of like you know, hey, God's people, uh, you know, suffer, and it seems to be affirmed in, in Scripture, which might sort of build on um, sort of a skeptical theist route or give a little more credence to something like that. Um, and so I get that. Um, 
and, and so I guess what we'll do is uh, we'll go to Than, and then I know Caleb has uh, done a lot of work on. on, on... I, I did want to ask one more que- question oh, sure. though, because okay. I, I this this points come up uh, multiple times now, and I and I want to ask this question. Um, the claim seems to be it's it's not about us, um, and the the very obvious rejoinder here is why not? We matter. So, I mean, that's that's just a question and then an unjustified assertion. I, mean, I would say that uh, the reason it's not about us is because we're the potter, or we're the, we're the clay, not the potter. God is the potter, so he's what matters. So that's fine as far as a creator and creation, but if we're say like, um, that's a descriptive feature. But I, when I say that we matter, that's a moral feature. That's a feature in which we would expect God to care about um, why do I say we expect that? Because we're assuming that God is perfectly moral and that God is impartially bene- benevolent. So he would be benevolent to everything that is morally relevant. Well, I just said that we're morally relevant. So in some sense, God's intentions are about us and they should be about us because we matter. Yeah, I would just respond by saying you can't impose uh, what you think God should be doing upon God. Uh, he is the potter, we are the clay, and we just must bow to his will. Well, so you're, the theist is the one doing this. The theist is the one attributing properties to God. And the properties we attribute to God constrain what we would expect the world to be, given those properties. So if we say that God is perfectly loving, in the case of horrendous suffering, we're going to say that God has a certain motivational set. And that motivational motivational set includes perfect love. And that perfect love has an object. The love, the attitude of love towards that object. What is that object? To me, I think it's obviously us. Well, so, I, think, I think that's assuming like a rather popular sort of evangelicalism, but that, it's not the biblical picture. And the biblical picture, God's perfect love is directed towards himself. It's, it's not about us. So again, we're back to the original disagreement of what it means for something to be moral. Is it something that's supremely self-interested or is it something that's impartially benevolent? So when you say that it's all about God, you're saying that God is supremely self-interested. To me, that's not morality. Morality has to do with impartial benevolence, not like, that's why I'm not an egoist. That's why I don't think that what I should do is whatever would be most rational for me. Um, I think that what I should do should make things go impartially best. It's so in that sense, I can I can respond to this by saying it's not all about me, it's not all about God, it's about all of us. Well, perhaps perhaps we can, I can leave it at this then, and we, and we can move on. I would say then, at best, what you're refuting is just a, a popular sort of evangelical understanding of God. You have not done anything though to argue against the God of biblical Christianity. But so the God of is the God of biblical Christianity perfectly moral? Absolutely. Are there bad things in the world? Those that God has decreed, yes. Are you asking of so that's the tension? The tension there, I promise you the tension exists. If there's yeah. if we're gonna say God is wholly good, may I ask if, also, you're if we're gonna say God is perfect, but the world is less than perfect, and a perfect being can't create anything less than a perfect world. May I ask if you're asking this and commenting this as an atheist or as a believer or 
I'm an atheist, so okay. I have an atheist um, podcast. Okay, but, so you don't even believe in good. Well, okay, oh, okay. So, <laughs> let's, um, hey, it's a whole rabbit trail. Yeah, yeah. I'm have to yeah let's not go there. Um, so we, we don't want to uh, attack Ben. He's he's uh, not only our guest that I invited on. He's a good friend of mine who I've learned a lot from. And and we we don't want to like also just like you know focus everything on yeah. him because it's we're we're having a discussion about it. Right. Um, and, and I'm good. I just found it fascinating. Well, an so, atheist. If somebody is an atheist, then they're naturalist. If they're naturalist, then they they don't believe that anything is truly good or evil. Period. That. Uh, you have the law uh, of the have, universe, the law of uh, the jungle, the survival of the fittest, you know? I, okay, so I, no, I, I don't think that's true. I think the naturalist has plenty of options, like, you know, moral Platonism. You know, perhaps, you know, there are objective morals as simply a yep. brute contingent fact. And so we, we don't want to, you know. There's a lot of options. Right. We don't want right, to. They're, 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 they're all subjective and uh, well, from his point of view. I'm just saying, from from the atheist point of view, everything is subjective. Uh, my I, attitude I, I, is I no more important. Hey, his uh, attitude Eric, is no more important. Eric, with all, I'm I'm, I'm a Christian, and um, I would just this is where I would offer you a few options that the atheist has. Right, they could be a Platonist. Well, these moral facts know, would be I'm, grounded. They could these moral facts would be grounded in some sort of abstract objects. They could be. See, a, I've uh, had this. I've had this discussion for forty years, dude. I'm not. I'm not just around the block once. Well, okay. I'm not assuming yeah. anything about you, right? So yeah. I'm just. I'm just playing the atheist here uh, for a second. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm just saying that honestly, from a from a naturalist point of view, the atheist cannot believe that his opinion or my opinion or any opinion is worth any more or less than any other opinion, and that really. Uh, morals don't matter at all. What matters is the survival of the fittest. As a matter of fact, from the atheist point of view, it could be honestly be said that each one of us is here because our forefathers were the best rapists around. No, okay. Okay. So, okay, that, that's simply so, false, and we don't. That's not false at all. It's, it's, right. So I, I did want to let's. I I'd like to kind of move the subject real quick here. Um, I do want to kind of bring up a issue that I think. I'm going to play atheist here again, <laughs> but I do I do have an issue with kind of the defenses that I've been hearing here a little bit, because um, it, it seems like the only like epistemic tool to we have to apprehend like moral truths would be our like our moral intuitions and experiences, and it seems like our experience shows that um, like gratuitous suffering, like deep suffering, um, is a bad thing, and so. If we're going to just kind of flip the script and say, well, like, well, obviously God exists and obviously God has good reasons to accept this. Like, at, at what point are we kind of diving into almost like a moral skepticism where we don't even know what's good or bad? Um, if we try to answer these challenges. How many, how many of you guys have served in the military? If you don't mind me asking. I was in the fire service. Okay. Do we I'm have a nuclear, was, nuclear engineer? Do we have anyone that was actual military? My question is what I work for the military. Okay. The reason that I ask is I'm just wondering if there's anybody on this panel other than myself that's ever been through basic training. No. Um, Travis, oh. did you want me to go, by the way, as far as yeah, uh, yes. I know you said that a while ago. Before yes, you um, I, I did. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm having a bit of a difficult time kind of managing through this. Yeah, but, uh, yeah so um, I do want to stay on. I'm determined to stay on track. And so Caleb has uh, actually has uh, some unique perspective on 
the original thing of Vincent of this horrendous suffering that uh, I would really like to hear. You know, he's written a, a book on it and has put a lot of time and effort into it. So, Caleb, uh, do you want to go ahead and give us your thoughts on this? Yeah. Well, first of all, after I go, we can pick like Germania, who I know just joined and hasn't really gotten the chance to speak yet uh, to mm-hmm. go. Um, second thing I would say is uh, for, to Rich is I'm sorry that Than is not welcome in your in your club. Uh, third, uh, just, this is a hype joke. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, wait. What? I actually oh, missed oh, that okay, joke. Okay. I, missed the I, was joke. I was watching Than's screen. I was like, man, he's not, he's not even blinking. Wait, I, I, actually missed the, I actually missed the joke. What? Rich, Rich was saying that God can't arbitrarily pick things and he can't make a club where only six foot tall people are allowed in. Uh, that's not that wasn't my point wait am i the shortest it's not funny if he has to repeat it way to ruin the joke i don't know i I thought you were taller than you told me over to you're like oh i'm only like five seven people assume i'm taller because i work out that's all (laughs) (laughs) anyway if you you don't mind me (laughs) making a very short comment on why i asked about the oh did he freeze um yeah he froze well, uh, intervention. Give me just to go. Sorry, I'll go. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, uh, perhaps it <laughs> who is said divided? No, no, no. Who said divided. that? Who said divided? Rich. So wait a minute. Wait. So so God doesn't God does intervene to stop evil after all. Okay. So <laughs> evidence of that. So <laughs> all right, I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, okay. I'm no longer an atheist. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I'm converted. <laughs> so okay. So anyway. anyway we're going to, Anyways, sorry. So going back to (laughs) to horrendous. Ah, going back to horrendous evils. Yeah, as we're laughing uncontrollably. Back to horrendous (laughs) evils. Talk about the Holocaust now, right? (laughs) Rape and murder. Anyway, yeah. Okay. If if you guys wouldn't mind, I'd like to make one comment on why I brought up the platoon sergeant and military training. Is because of this. Anybody that's ever been in the military, and chances are you've got tons of people out in your audience that have joined the military at one point or another, then they know what basic training is all about. They know what a good platoon sergeant is about. A good platoon sergeant does not coddle you, buddy. A good platoon sergeant will put you through the tasks. They will they will not just wear you out, they will, if possible. They will beat you down and turn you into a completely new person. Uh, They will torture you, literally torture you, until you become a better man, literally. And they don't do this to self-gratify themselves. They're not just a bunch of sadists. They're doing this to keep you alive on the battlefield. And uh, I say this as a man that came to love my platoon sergeant. And appreciate a very mean, very hardcore person that didn't mind inflicting a bunch of suffering on the people that were put into his care. All right. I actually can bounce off of that a little bit because uh, that was kind of pertinent to what I was going to say uh, earlier yes, about please. suffering. Yeah. So I actually do, I think of the theodicies, I think the soul making theodicy is the best one, or at least the least flawed. And I actually think, and I talk about this in the book, and I don't think this gets brought up that much in, in philosophical discussions because much of philosophy is thought experiments and hypotheticals. But I think we have pretty strong empirical data that suffering makes us better people. I mean, if you look at statistics as far as like char- uh, which country is the most charitable, 15 out of the top 20 are impoverished countries where people have very little. And so it's interesting to me that people who were in 
desolate environments where disease is prevalent and who have nothing are much more humble, much more giving, much more loving than people in the West, Western world, generally speaking. And so I think this is strong evidence that, yes, these kind of environments do bring out strong moral characters. And of course, you can look at anecdotes as well. And anecdotes go both ways, of course. But in most of the Holocaust, um, Corrie ten Boom was a you know, famous Christian convert in the Holocaust. She recounts uh, years after she was freed from the camps, uh, going to her church and seeing a person who had been a former um, uh, Nazi soldier at the camp. And he in particular had abused her sister. Her sister ended up dying in that camp. And he, he converted to Christianity and he came to her and he was like, uh, I've done so much wrong stuff in my past. I've hurt you. Will you please forgive me? And Corey even as hard as it was ended up forgiving him and loving him. And so I think those kinds of goods can, can result from that. And if you didn't have a world in which suffering like that was imminent, you wouldn't have that level of goodness. If, if we had low level sufferings like paper cuts and people eating, uh, you know, eating your lunch at work, I mean, it would suck, but our ability to forgive that and to get over that is nowhere near as good as the ability to overcome, you know, systemic racism like Dr. Martin Luther King did, for example. So that is now I think Rich uh, brought up an interesting point as to why is this not evenly distributed? I think that's a very I think it's one of the better objections. And I think part of it is because I think suffering does have to be somewhat unpredictable, because if everyone had the same level of suffering, it wouldn't it would negate it. Uh, for example, you know, it's, it's more this is going to sound harsh, but it's more tragic if someone dies young in a freak accident than it would be if an older person who died of natural means. Of course, both are tragic, but one of them is expected. One of them is not. So I think the fact that suffering is often unexpected and, and uh, it is what adds to it and adds to the impact of it. And I think if we were all able to predict that I'm going to have this much suffering in my life to build me up and all this, I think it would it would undermine it. Now, as far as why, who gets which parts of suffering? That's going to depend on your theology. So I, like Travis, am more of a Molinist, so I think this depends on God's mill knowledge of who takes what. I also, and I say this as a universalist, uh, I personally don't think most theodicies work without having some kind of post-mortem salvation and post-mortem soul-making. I think if soul-making is just on this earth with what we can see and after that Preach it's over. Preach it, Caleb. Preach it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your support, man. Because I think if this if this world is the only one we get, then soul making ultimately doesn't work. Because although it's true that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, oftentimes stuff does kill you, and that's just that's just the reality. So I think there. I do believe in not not so much a purgatory, but hell is a purgatorial state, and I think that everyone will receive soul making in due time through this process. And I think that's. In my opinion, that's a necessary element to theodicy. So, so, yeah. so I want to jump in and, and piggyback. Sorry, uh, I just want to piggyback off real quick what Caleb was saying because I think he's he's hit on a very deep point, or at least for what it's worth, I think it's a very deep point. Um, Thank you. I appreciate so, that. I those of you who are familiar with my work, I'm not the biggest fan of the free will defense or a free will theodicy. My favorite theodicy is the soul-building theodicy. I think that that's the most plausible of the theodicies on offer. But I think that Caleb is exactly right in this is that when we face the problem of something like horrendous suffering, that we have to add on to our theory this idea of a universal salvation so that people who suffer horrendously at least have some sort of compensation in an afterlife. Now, compensation does not imply justification. Um, you know, I might break your windows in your house and then give you a million dollars because I broke your – but that just because I compensated you for those windows did not justify my breaking those windows in the first place. Right. But, um, but so there's still the problems there. However, if I'm putting on my theist hat and I'm trying to solve the problem of evil seriously, 
Um, and I'm looking at the problem of horrendous suffering. And I'm sympathetic to something like a soul-building theodicy. I don't see any way out without that universalist um, afterlife, that salvation where everyone does realize a deepest good and that their lives were on, were on the whole worth living. Thank you. And just as a point of compensation real fast, and then we'll, I, I will let like people like Germania and stuff speak because I know they've been there mm -hmm. for a while. Um, I, I would say that I don't know if that's a necessary analogous because I would argue that in the Windows case, you could just give someone a million dollars without having to break their windows. Whereas I think the whole point of soul building is, yes, God could have just given us a perfect right. moral character, but we wouldn't be responsible. We would just be spoiled and giving, whereas us having to work for it and earn it. And I know this sounds like work-based salvation. I've, some Christians tell me that, but us having to earn it and to own our own, our own keep essentially is a is necessary. And that's why um, that is necessary for that. Whereas... Um, I don't know if those, you know, the I'm just going to cause damage and I owe you back. I don't know if the, it's necessarily the same morally, but that's just a, a point I would make. But I, I think I'm glad that Ben and I see eye to eye on a lot of, at least, you know, if he's, if he if he were to entertain theism, my brand of theism, I, I, yeah. I, I'm a preacher of that. And by the way, Ben, Ben Watkins is one of the better atheists online today. He's certainly far more competent than most of the new atheists. And so I just wanted to compliment him on that. Yes, yeah. I'm doing something right. Yes, yes you are. <laughs> Doesn't matter what the says. Yes. And, and, and so, and we, and so even as a Christian watching Ben have to interact with uh, other people who I won't name, <laughs> Canadian Catholic, makes me empathetic towards <laughs> him. And so uh, I, I actually, I, I, I take his side on many things like that. So I'll just say that and then I will let some more other guests. I find myself in the theist camp quite often. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> do you, do yeah, you mind if I just well, jump on uh, that for a second? Yes. You, Rich, I interrupted Rich earlier. It's so. all right. If I could just jump almost, in just for a second here. Uh, just quickly, um, I think uh, Eric and Bonson von Till, uh, 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 part of the conversation shows why I prefer to always start out with um, uh, talking about what we're talking about if we're even talking about what good is, what good and morality is. Otherwise, mm -hmm. people just get to say things like God can do whatever he wants and it glorifies God. Um, and, you know, even C.S. Lewis famously said, sort of paraphrasing, uh, that uh, if God basically isn't uh, good in the sense that we apply that term to each other, um, then when we say God is good, we are saying God is we know not what. And, and the whole tension arises. Uh, the reason people go searching for theodicies is because um, there seems to be this tension with good as we intuit it, good as we generally apply that epithet to our fellow beings um, and everyday judgments. And then there's a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to fit that for a being who's supposed to be good, who had the power to stop it. So there's that, and you got to start with this general idea of the problem before you go uh, leaping into saying that it's uh, everything is, you know, for instance, is just for God's glory. I mean, cause otherwise, I, you know, you could say that God could come down and start roasting everybody's third child on a spit for eternity, you know, uh, you know, drinking in everybody's tears and well, that glorifies God. So that's good. But that would not at all fit um, the sense of good, which brings the theodicy problem to us in the first place. And I would just finish by saying that um, about what Caleb said. So Caleb, you're just saying uh, on the soul building theodicy that, for instance, the evidence shows suffering can make us better people. Suffering can be good in that sense, if, if I've paraphrased uh, properly. Yes. The thing about that and sort of soul building 
um, uh, theodicies strike me as they seem based on what seems to be a contingent point about our psychology. Um, it may be a, it may be that psychologically um, suffering as we are can make us better people will feel better. But as I said, it, it, why isn't that contingent? Why couldn't God have created beings whose psychology doesn't depend on suffering and evil in order to uh, progress themselves? I don't see why not. So I guess I would say, and I hate to, to have to bring in free will here, but I guess I would say that it could be that part of just an a priori principle of freedom and autonomy is that um, that is how that is the necessary requisite for it to work. Um, in, in is God does God have free will? Does God have free will? Yeah. Uh, depending on which. That's another model big question. That's a yeah. big. I know, question. but but it, I think that yes. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think there are any external constraints to God's freedom as far in that, as to that sense, or I don't think God's God's free God's choices are determinately caused by something external to Him. So, if in that sense, so yeah. He has morally relevant uh, He has morally relevant free will, I presume. Yes, but I also would say that God's freedom is necessary, whereas ours is contingent. But okay. God's so, God's morally relevant free will. Um, he's a being who only ever uh, chooses the good. Um, and if that is based on his character, his, his character essentially uh, determines that, then there's no logical incompatibility with God creating beings whose character is to always choose the good freedom. It seems to me like you're misunderstanding God, the character of God. Uh, if you don't mind me saying okay. so. Well, Let's let's finish. Oh, let me wait. Let me let me answer that. Mm -hmm. now. I really want to have people like Gerd go because I'm sorry. I know we, yeah, Travis and I've been trying to get him to go like the past twenty minutes. So sorry. I'll answer your question. Sorry, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be. you're good. Yeah. Right, I'll answer your question real fast. So uh, this also depends on your theology, Rich. But I I think Alvin Plantinga was right to say that this is it is true that that's logically possible, but it might not be feasible. So although it is logically possible for uh, me to choose van a vanilla ice cream cone and, or an, a chocolate one. God cannot guarantee that I will if I if I'm genuinely autonomous from. He may want me to. It may be possible. It's there's nothing contradictory about it, but that doesn't mean therefore I will. So feasibility and possibility and logical possibility are two different things. So, that, but that God is a case showing the feasibility. What was that? God is a case showing well, the feasibility. God is also God is also an infinite being whose whose will exists necessarily. So it could be that with contingent wills like humanity's, there's different kind of properties so okay so i'm gonna i'm going to drop this this gets us into some uh elements of free will and libertarianism mm -hmm. stuff like that that i love going down but i'm not going to bog down the it the is fascinating so, I, I agree i think it's yeah. a great question but sorry go yeah. ahead Rich. i'm trying to like, i'm like biting my tongue on like <laughs> i know 10 different I know. Okay, I'm like, nope nope don't do it don't do it i'm after, dropping it like a hot potato it's gone we'll talk about it yeah yeah, Rich. I'm thinking a little puppies now. Rich, is this similar to like the optimist, like the optimists objection, almost? I don't know God. the optimist objection. Oh, really? Well, uh, let's. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to start that can of worms. <laughs> so, okay. uh, I'll maybe I've heard it, but I don't really show. It. And yeah, I'll give you. Some, I'll, I'll recommend some reading on it. If you, you're probably way more learned than me, so I feel like probably even just saying that. To you. <laughs> but All right. um, it's a really let's interesting. Let's let our guests go now. Just yeah, yeah. To, sorry to cut you off there. Good, yeah. No, no. Yes. Uh, Ger, please. Yes. Uh, uh, what, finally, what do you have to say? <laughs> uh, listen, it's all good because, trust me, I understand how these streams go. When you have a lot of people, you know, patience is a virtue. Uh, 
But as far as the problem of evil goes, um, what, if, if God is incapable of evil and we are made in his image, then why are we capable of evil? Why, why is evil even a thing in the reality of God who, is, who there is no evil in? It's a really good question. So would this kind of get into like privation theory or? Well, that, that's fine. Uh, but it's just like. Yeah, so, pri- so sorry, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. So privation theory of evil is a theory about evil. It's a, it's, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a theory about what evil is. So I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the, what's being put on the table is, is that look prior to creation, God, God is the only thing. And he's, you know, we'll call this prior purity. He's entirely Mm -hmm. good. There's nothing at all. Then there's this creation event and there's, morally relevant people in this creation event right. that can do evil. Well, I think the question is, where did this evil come from? Right. It didn't and come we, from God. And why would we even want to, why would we even desire this evil if we were made in the image of an all good God? Even if we have well, free will, have, why would we choose uh, out of our free will evil when not even God does so? so uh, do you mind if I ask a relevant question? Uh, can I can I go like um, real quick and then we'll we'll turn it over to you, Eric? Sure. Uh, okay. So yeah. So um, I just uh, Kirk McGregor has an interesting paper on uh, on this that would say something like you know only God is absolute perfection, right? And uh, the evil as a private is a privation of the good. And so anything he creates is going to necessarily contain that certain lack lack of good, and that God maintains a certain epistemic distance from us. For us to make morally relevant decisions, soul build things of of that nature, because if he if he did not maintain that epistemic distance, then like a magnet, you know, he would draw everything to himself without being able to make morally relevant independent decisions. And so that's one offer that has been put. But that's but that's not his. That's not the question that he just asked. The question he says we're made in the image of God. God has a certain moral nature. Mm -hmm. Why don't we have that similar moral nature? So even if we say it concede that we are finite and God is infinite, our moral natures could still be such that we could only choose freely choose good. But that, right, and, and that why is there even to, evil to begin with? If if everything is created in the by an all loving God who's incapable of evil himself. Here's why if, I if it's a perfect creator, how is it anything less than a perfect Right. Creator? How can an all-perfect creator create a, an imperfect creation or a creation that has the well, desire to be honest? I but I've talked a lot, so I'll let someone else go. I, I, I think we said Eric was going to go next. I yeah, think so we here's agreed why, here's to why I just okay. Here's why I just want to ask my question. It's, it's a very simple question. And I don't say this is a slam on anybody. Don't take it that way, please. I'm just wondering... How many people in this little podcast here consider themselves Christian? I do, for one. Yes, I'm I a don't. Christian. Yes, yeah. Okay, okay. So we have one unbeliever, so to speak. I'm an unbeliever. We have three. There's three, three I think. So yeah. three. Yeah, three. Yeah, John okay. O, Ben, Andrew. Okay. okay. Four. We have four. We have four. Here's why I ask that, because I, <laughs> I want to know who I'm, who I'm talking to and what you what you actually do believe, because I don't want to assume something or, or misrepresent you. But... I'm going to say, if we're going to understand God's nature, then I would suggest letting God speak for himself 
and not assuming God's nature. Uh, for instance, I could read to you Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, a very short verse, but it is very relevant as to who God is, especially when you put it in uh, light of the book of Romans uh, regarding predestination. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, it seems to me that uh, if you're going to come up with a description of the Christian God, that you have to include this as part of the description. But you can't just leave it there. You have to take this in conjunction with all of the other scriptures where he is telling us about himself. For instance... Well, I was going to ask if I could piggyback off of that point. Uh, it's uh, there seems to be because uh, I think Eric is precisely right here. Is that he's going to scripture, and uh, this is kind of something I wanted to say to to Rich before. You're right that we should not begin these conversations, uh, you know, just by as if we can just begin by talking about the problem of evil without having some certain concepts established first, because you're quite right. I'm going to contend that you can't know anything. You can't know anything at all unless you begin with the God revealed in Scripture. So you begin with the God revealed in Scripture. Your name. <laughs> you, 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 you begin there, and of course, so that, that, that would be the argument. I would agree, because if we start there, I'm going to contend that you can't even make sense of the idea of morality at all, uh, the idea of evil, if you don't begin with the Christian God. And so, therefore, evil could not even, in principle, provide a defeater for Christian theism. So I, I think you're right there. And so I think Eric is actually right. If we're going to discuss if evil is a defeater for Christian theism, we've got to begin by seeing how does the Bible describe God. Okay. Would you have to know something before you read Scripture? Sorry, could you say that again? Would you have to know something, anything, before you read Scripture? If it's something scriptural, yes. So, so knowledge is make, possible. Well, you can, we, we would make a God, distinction God between... Deal, God can deal with people individually, but that's not going to conflict with his word. No, no, no. no. So, the, so the, the claim was is that knowledge presupposes scripture. What? It, it presupposes we did, was God. conceded that knowledge is required in order to understand mm. scripture. No, no, no. So that's, no. So that's a the, literal contradiction. There, there is no, a distinction yeah. between proximate sources of knowledge and ultimate sources of knowledge. So yes, proximately, you're going to begin with the knowledge that you gain from your senses. And of course, I'm going to include the innate knowledge of God in that as well. So, would, would, so I want to I want to know more about the distinction between approximate knowledge and ultimate knowledge, because that's uh, so if I were to go look in the epistemological literature right now, I wouldn't find that distinction anywhere. So I would very much like to hear more about this distinction between approximate knowledge and ultimate no, knowledge. Would you rather hear about the goodness and the evilness of the God you're talking about here? Would you like to know what God actually said about himself from the biblical point of view? Okay. And from that point, you can rightly judge. You know, do do I think this is good or bad or what? Until then, until you know what God says about himself, you're just playing guessing games that, in my opinion, oh. are validated by anything but uh, 
ignorance of the scripture. Can I, can I ask, uh, well, I was going to ask Vincent Vantilla a, a, a different question, but I think I'll save it. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, okay, this is way, this might be off topic to this particular discussion, but I think still revolves around the problem of evil. Uh, when a baby dies, does the baby's soul go to heaven or hell or somewhere else? You know, that's actually a, I actually just had a, one of my closest friends of mine just had a, um, a uh, stillborn child. They, they lost their child uh, almost third trimester. And the pain that they had to go through was really hard to watch. And so that's been something that I've been thinking about recently. And mm -hmm. I think if you look. I'm sorry to hear that. My condolences to your friend. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those where, you know, in, in Job, when he's suffering, his friends go around and sit and they mourn for days before they say anything. And I think that's sometimes the attitude of regardless of the intellectual conversations, when people are going through tough times, they don't want to hear, um, well, God's doing it for this reason or, well, this shows that there's no God. I don't think that helps people either way. So that's just as a Oh, side. yeah, I would agree with that. But emotions yeah. aside, as far as the theological or philosophical outlook goes, mm -hmm. if if an infant if an infant unfortunately dies but it goes to heaven mm -hmm. uh would you say that the odds of it going to heaven are far greater dying as an infant versus uh living to adulthood and risking so, going to uh, hell so the so that, yeah that's a great question so biblically although there's no clear indication you can see parts where you know david is more in the loss of his son he says but i'll see him again in the afterlife mm -hmm. jesus talks about the children pretty happily so I think most people would want to just say intuitively yes because babies seem innocent. Now, I, not everyone there, and I'm sure I'm sure our friend, uh, yeah, there. I was about to say I I I, I commented this like 40 minutes back, Travis, said that that Vance and Bento was was David Palmer doing a really bad accent. But <laughs> I, I was going to say that I was like, oh, I did, I not, did I not say did I not say that in the in the chat like when he. Look, but, uh, but, and actually, but I mean, do believe God well, speaks in that where he says, where Paul says that. Uh, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Yeah, and but, a, a baby, a, an unborn child, babies, little toddlers, they don't understand the laws of God. Yeah, they don't. The reason. I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. So there are people read who scripture. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Calvin, yeah. Calvin actually thought uh, Calvin, you know, being the the uh, great uh, philosopher that he was, and I say that somewhat sarcastically he said that well you know god has the right uh there are the so there i'm trying to get this exactly right he said there are the souls of unelected children not a span long in hell burning for god's glory so take that as you will but uh, um i think as far as that goes and that's a hard question because if you're going to say that's obviously you know morally questionable but if you're going to say yes they go to heaven then it's like well why doesn't god just make us all babies and kill us and have us go? you know why did they get a pass mm -hmm. for soul making and we don't so Mm -hmm. That does raise some interesting questions. Although now I did want to comment on something that um, was brought up. I forget. I forget if this was by Rich or no. Maybe actually, maybe it was by. I think it was by both of you. Um, as far as the uh, going back to, for a second to the like transal depravity or can why why not the image of God? Why no? Why have suffering? Why not make us perfect? I actually have a chapter where I argue. I, did, I don't think this theodicy is as well known. It's specifically a Christian theodicy called Felix Culpa or Superlapsarianism is another yeah. term for it more the technical one and that idea is that even if god were to make let's say god makes the garden of eden a perfect world in which there is no uh no sin and, and humans are, are morally perfect that world would actually still have issues because 
the relationship between man and God would be strained and that we would never understand God's love for us. Because I think one of the things that seems intuitive is that love, at least genuine love, love that's worth having requires some kind of sacrifice of one's part. Um, to, to really have a mother work hard to provide for a child is more noble than a billionaire just handing out money because he has it. Having that kind of finitude and limit to be able to work and to help and to love people to sacrifice yourself, I think is a great good. And this is a good that would not be had in a world in which everyone was already perfect and, and God didn't really have any way of displaying this because God could just snap his fingers and give us whatever he wanted to. So I'm hearing an echo. Someone's mic yeah. is echoing. This is a good that would not be had in a world Oh, I think it was Travis. Uh, <laughs> so so with that being said, if these are necessary, then you get into the Christian doctrines of incarnation and atonement. So the Christians view that God became a man, that he sacrificed himself to atone for our sins, and that this is ultimately how we, we know God. The Bible clearly says throughout that you know God demonstrated his love for us. So, I, so in that point, I would say that although God could have made a world in which that was perfect, that would be a worse world overall. And in the light of eternity, it is better for God to make a broken world with this level of love to which we can reflect forever than it is for us to have eternity with God in which we can't understand his love. So it's a greater well, good overall. One last thing, and then I'll be quiet. One reason why I ask, and this isn't the only reason, but um, me being an atheist, if Christianity is true, depending on what view of Christianity you subscribe to, uh, I will be damned for eternity. Whereas if I was either aborted as a fetus or died as a child, I would go to heaven and I would not have risked my eternal destination. Uh, given that, I would have preferred to be either aborted or died as a child before uh, rejecting the idea of God or uh, lacking or, the know, belief in Him. You could just do what I you could just do what I do and just say that hell isn't eternal, eternal and get rid of that. Actually. <laughs> This is. I'm not saying that I, I was leaning towards universalism before I became an atheist. Okay. Also, uh, I, I do think there's I, some arguments to be made there. I am not saying that I support this view, but I do think it's an interesting question. Uh, again, I'm not like saying this is true, but I think you know, that, I, I find that most of the churches absolutely has not a clue on the biblical teaching of. Uh, of uh, predestination. Well, we could talk yeah. about the, the ancient texts, and, and that's a whole other exegetical. And that's a whole other show. It is a whole other show. Hey, look, guys. It answers hey guys, everything you're asking. You know, I jumped in because, you know, at some point we have to end this awesome conversation. But I'm going to let Jono give his last question, and then I'm going to hand it back to Travis. So that he can give uh, a couple closing comments uh, and let Blake or Ben Ben Watkins give a couple closing statements as well. So I again, I really appreciate this conversation. I was glad I was able to step out. Like I said, uh, I, I did it at the perfect time because the wife brought me some of God's chicken from Chick Fil A. So I got to eat <laughs> me a spicy chicken sandwich Look, and watch you guys go at it. And, you know, my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So uh, Jono, uh, go for it, bud. And if I butchered that name, I'm sorry, brother. All good. The Australians pronounce it with a thick accent. It's like Jono. But um, I liked okay. what uh, Caleb was saying before, and I just wanted to tie it into something Ben brought up earlier about the like deontological arguments. So one thought I have that a lot of theodicies people use in defense of Christianity seem to actually conflict with Christian theology. So the kind of idea of a greater goods theology is that God allows X because X can bring about Y and Y is 
a greater good. It's like more good than X was bad. It seems that that commits you to a kind of utilitarianism, which is kind of explicitly taught against in the Bible when like Paul in Romans says, like you shouldn't do evil so that good may come. And if you're a Catholic, utilitarianism is like condemned by the, the magisterium or whatever. So is that kind of making sense? My point that it seems like there's a conflict between the theodicies in defense of Christianity and actual Christian teaching, or was that totally nonsensical? Um, and I'm about no, to. No, so it's a, I think it's a super deep question. That's a it's a really good question to ask. And so, in typical philosopher fashion, I'm going to say it depends. Um, so you can also make a similar move in deontological terms by saying, look. Some act, acts can have right-making or wrong-making properties. And so some act is right or wrong, all things considered, based on how the balance of right-making and wrong-making properties are. So a right-making act will be one in which all the right-making properties sufficiently counterbalance any wrong-making properties. So you can make the same sort of move in deontological terms um, as far as theodicy now, whether or not, so I'm not particularly one to think that utilitarianism or consequentialism more broadly is incompatible a priori, um, with theism. I don't think that. So I think you are right in pointing out that a lot of theodicies seem to have involved in some form of consequentialism, some sort of like, well, the consequences justify God's intentions of um, creating in the way that he did. Um, and so I would be very resistant of a move that says, look, theism and consequentialism are incompatible or intention, because I think you're really um, neutering theodicy with that move. Yeah, right. so it's specifically Christianity, I think. It's incompatible conflict with consequentialism not theism more broadly because i think there's kind of biblical fair enough yeah so i I, that's a good point all of my claims came from kind of downstream of a perfect being theism where it's neutral on judaism christianity islam so yeah if there's some further tension with christian theology it's out of my domain i'm not a theologian so Sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hey, you know, also I haven't heard much from Dale. So Dale, uh, could you uh, chime in here? Thanks, David. Yeah, yeah, cool. I just have one one quick question for both Ben and and Val. I'd like to hear from Val as well because he knows my position on this front and stuff. So, um, so great. So I like that you take a deontological approach here. So it's based on moral rules. Um, you probably know that there can be exemptions to moral rules and that sort of thing. And you kind of lay, from my understanding, your first premise, you kind of say, well, look, you can't allow for these horrendous evils unless there's an exemption based on the deepest good. And for, for me, I would take the position that that's the soul building uh, type defense. But in this show, I think we've been kind of focusing on soul building for that particular person. but. Could it be possible that there's benefits for other people, like soul building for other people that could potentially justify or provide an exemption to this principle? That's against the deontological principle of using somebody instrumentally, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like to me. So 
It's going to depend on what our moral commitments are as far as the implications of our moral theory um, that we're um, bringing to this. We're going to have to appeal to some sort of substantive um, moral principle in order to try to resolve um, this question or try to answer this question. And so I would want to focus. So ask your question one more time so I make sure that I have it clear. Um, yeah, so, oh, sorry. Yeah. So uh, go ahead. Uh, so I was just kind of wondering, like, could it be that there, the justification for the exemption of, of this principle or rule or whatever is not so much that it necessarily always has to provide for soul building for, for the individual undergoing the suffering, but perhaps it could provide a greater good or in a soul building way for others. Maybe five other people would develop. Yeah, no, so this is great. So um, I think I think I have your question clear um, because what I want to say is this, say here is it's going to depend on what the implications of our particular moral theory are because I think the overarching moral principle here was that things have to go impartially best. Well, what does impartially best look like? Well, maybe impartially best includes everyone um, realizing their deepest good in similar, you know, they don't have to realize them in the same way, but the fact, you know, this is an egalitarian principle that everyone equally find, realizes their deeper, deepest good. That might be what constitutes things going impartially best. Um, it might be that people who achieve the greatest level of freedom. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple different views that we could take here. Um, but I think they would all be constrained by the idea that whatever the case is, it would have to make things go impartially best. So if you're going to take the route that like some people suffer horrendously for the benefit of others, you would have to defend that view on the whole. So where do I think that's going to run into problems? Let's think about what we were talking about with this exception. Um, God would not let someone, let any particular individual suffer horrendously unless it was necessary, a necessary condition for realizing their deepest good. Well, what would their deepest good look like? Well, if we're supposing that theism is true, I think the answer is a loving relationship with God. There, what could possibly be better than a loving relationship with a maximally perfect being. Well, then we have to ask, is suffering horrendously a necessary condition for a relationship with a perfectly loving being? Clearly it's not. So I don't know what, so if we're going to say, what is the exception to this principle? What is the deepest good that horrendous suffering would be a necessary condition for? It's not a loving relationship with God. What else could it be? I don't think there's any good answer to that question. Cool. Thank, thank you so much. And Val, if you don't mind giving your quick take, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I mean, I agree with what Ben just said. Um, and I, uh, um, I don't want to get into an argument uh, now, so just as sort of an overall nutshell, is that it still strikes me as um, problematic in that it still strikes me as gratuitous and not necessary or no reason to think of it as uh, it being necessary that somebody suffers that 
five other people benefit from it, um, given God's uh, character of omniscience and omnipotence. Um, it, it just doesn't, I don't see how you get a necessity out of that to justify it. But like I said, I'm not going to really construct the whole argument for it. I just want to give a, a nutshell. It's the same thing. Like it just seems what I'm saying is that this, the idea that um, it, it, it's necessary that one, for one person to suffer, for five people to uh, benefit somehow, uh, it just seems like a based on possible contingent facts that would could have been different. Could I, could I offer you two guys an invitation? And I, I sincerely mean this, Ben and, and you. Um, this is an invitation to uh, have a further discussion somewhere down the road. Uh, and I don't, I don't care who all is involved. I, I invite everybody. But uh, what I'd like to do is have the opportunity to express to you what God says about himself and about good and evil and why there is evil in the world and our free will, our responsibility in all this and what makes God good and righteous in all of this. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to do it in such a way to where this is not my opinion, but I'm giving you strictly from the scripture itself, the statements made by God about himself in a way that I think is very easily understandable. Thank you for that invitation to all of us, Eric. And I think with that, we are going to wrap up our show because we yes. are at the two-hour mark. And so. yeah, this is going this is going on along, guys. This has been amazing to just hear everybody chime in. This has probably been the most fullest open mic night we've had in a while. And just by way of uh, thanking everybody that came on, I, I mean, anytime uh, I'm going to make this announcement now is that every February I do a guest host month. So what I mean by that is you can totally take over this podcast and put us in the hot seat or you can have a debate and host it with us or grab somebody else if you want to. You can take over the whole stream, you know. So I, I, I just want to throw that out there. Anybody's uh, welcome to participate. All you got to do is, you know, message me, Travis or Caleb. Uh, it was really successful last year. We had reasons to doubt on that put me and Palman in the hot seat so before Caleb and Travis joined us and then Travis and Caleb hosted the show which David was fun. Pullman is like the biggest troll ever I love him yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I, I knew this I knew this the second he came on too because I was like yeah that's a fake accent he no he got me he, he got me like he he's like 110 percent got me Travis you want to I messaged him five minutes in I'm like that's David Pullman isn't doing yeah he did no I did not know it until he flashed his face i was like that's dead wow are you man. kidding me, uh, yeah, <laughs> Caleb, you, me. You, you called it man you called it really well I, I, um, just because the name of its the, the accent the name, the well played is all i've always wanted to well start played, a slow clap well. and like i really just want to start a slow clap for david paul <laughs> well, well done well done right on. well um yeah <laughs> just uh real quick travis i'm gonna let you wrap this all right brother yeah. Uh, okay. So I guess my closing pose, uh, I think we heard some uh, really good arguments. Um, I'm very sympathetic to, you know, the problem of animal pain and also horrendous suffering. I think, you know, some theodicies are, are better than others. Um, I, I tend to be sympathetic towards Brian Davies that God is not a moral agent who's under these various obligations that, you know, he only uh, intends the good and permits the evil and 
Travis is going to be a Catholic in like a year. I like mark my word. Like like what time? Like timestamp. Like mark the timestamp of this. I'm gonna be like Travis, Travis. Like remember when we had a conversation and I was like, "You're going to be a Catholic." Oh, I, I, I do, <laughs> Travis. Or I guess it's communion at this point. But don't don't drink it at this point. Don't, don't work over to the Roman side of. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll keep all that in mind. I will say they do have cooler hats than Protestants, but the Orthodox have the coolest hats, though. So it's still it's it's a shift, but yeah. No right. <laughs> I think, I think, but, uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, I think Caleb had some uh, really good uh, insights as well. Uh, uh, I understand where Eric's wanting to come from the Bible. I didn't find it very convincing, um, and, and then I, I thought Gur had some interesting objections. You know, like. If we're made in God's image, you know, why is, you know, they're evil? Why do we have the propensity for evil and, and things of that sort? So, yeah, I think we had a really good, uh, fruitful conversation. And um, I want to thank everyone for coming on. And so I'll go ahead and leave it to David Russell to finalize and close this up. Right on again. Uh, uh, ben, thanks for coming on. Uh, everybody that participated, uh, I really appreciate y'all's contributions, man. I mean, it's it's people like you that make this show grow. It's people like you that make this show fun. And it's people like you that challenge us in areas we need to be challenged. So, again, uh, appreciate all you guys, Dan. Uh, thanks for coming on. Rich, again, a pleasure. Uh um, J Jono, I hear. I know I mess that up all the time. I don't have the thick accent, but I uh, appreciate you and and of course my good friend Dale Glover for coming on and uh, also Gur. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, coming on as well. So guys, oh, yeah, th that, thanks uh, for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Just anytime, man. Just uh, let us know. Uh, but yeah, for any sure. open mic night again. We're all about interaction and stuff like that. So again, with that, guys, uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>